پدرم Four different men have asked her to marry them. And uh, how many times has she gotten married? None. And, and actually, by the end, there's a fifth. Um, is there something wrong with this picture? To, to continually say yes? I, I think the biggest problem is Maggie doesn't understand the definition of the word yes. Men ask her to marry them. She says yes, but she can't ever go through with it. So just real quickly, what was that? Okay. Yeah. Um, here's, we're going to define yes and no. All right? This is on your listening guide. Just in case you're unclear. Yes means I will. No means I won't. Okay? 
deep, deep definitions here, but, but this is real important today. Yes means I, w- I will do something or I agree with something. Now, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon of all, Matthew 5 through 7, he told us that when you say yes, let your yes be yes. When you say no, let your no be no. And he says, anything beyond this is from the evil one. So you're not supposed to swear on your mother's grave. You're not supposed to make all of these big uh, promises. Cross my heart, hope to die. Jesus said very simply, let your yes mean yes, I will, or yes, I plan to, or I'm going to, I agree. And let your no be, uh-uh, not going to do that. Now, Maggie said yes, but she didn't mean yes. And this reminds me of one of Jesus' parables. Jesus told a lot of stories to help people remember. But I've got to set the the stage for this story. So we're going to back up earlier in Matthew 21, and I want you to see what happens. Jesus gets in trouble with the religious leaders again. Do you sense a theme in Jesus' life? Jesus was always in trouble with the religious leaders. And here's what happens in Matthew 21, 12, and 13. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. Now, let me stop right there. What's going on is this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's come into Jerusalem on Sunday. He's going to die on Friday. Now, at the very beginning of his ministry, he entered the temple and there were people selling uh, animals for sacrifices, making obscene profits. He drove them out at the beginning of his ministry. Here we are at the end of his ministry. He's about to die and he comes into the temple and he sees again that they're, they're making obscene profits off of people coming to the temple to sacrifice. You had to sacrifice pure animals. They were charging unreal prices for these Uh, these pure animals. You had to sacrifice pure, not impure. You had to sacrifice pure animals. You also had to change your money from whatever your money was into the the proper coins to be used in Israel. They're making obscene profits off of people. Now, where they were doing this is in the outer part of the temple. You couldn't do it on the inner part of the temple. The outer part is where the Gentiles, that's people who were not Israelites, were supposed to come and hear about the love of God and have their lives changed. The Gentiles were staying away from the temple in droves because it was being made into a mockery of a place of worship. And so the Gentiles were avoiding it. And so Jesus walks in, sees this, and here it is. He drives them out. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. So they're making all kinds of obscene prophets. And Jesus called it my temple. So he was equating himself with God. And then the Bible says that uh, he begins to teach. And so all kinds of blind people and and sick people and, and lame people come to him. He's healing them all. And it's such a wonderful time that even the kids, the children start singing praises to God. And the religious police show up. The religious police, that's the leaders. That's the leading priests and and everybody. They show up and they didn't like what was going on. Um, Look at what it says in Matthew 21, 15. Put that up there. That's the next one, Ashley. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the little children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. And they were what? Okay, the religion police show up They see incredible things happening. People getting healed. Stuff had not happened like this since the beginning of the world. They saw great stuff happening. And little children praising Jesus. And they were what? Indignant. Now, see, when they show up, the religion police, their job, legitimate job was to ask, dude, who sent you? They were supposed to make sure that everything that was taught in the temple was of God. And so they show up and they're like, who sent you? Totally legitimate question. Where did you get this authority? Who sent you? What are you doing this for? 
but their motive was completely illegitimate. Their motive was Jesus was more popular than they were and they didn't like it. Because when he showed up, people came and packed the temple, but they weren't paying any attention to them. And so the religion police were jealous. Their motive was illegitimate. And so they they asked Jesus, okay, where do you come from? Who sent you? And Jesus goes, wait a minute, I'll ask you a question. Don't ever get in a debate with Jesus. You're going to lose. Jesus says, well, let me ask you a question. And he says, if you answer my question, then I'll be glad to answer your question. But if you don't answer my first question, I will not answer yours. So Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning of his ministry. And he says, who sent John the Baptist? So three years before, you remember, Jesus walks out and John the Baptist says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said, who sent John the Baptist? And so the Bible tells us that these religion police, they they actually leave Jesus. They go off over here and they confer with one another. They say, oh, dude, we're in trouble because if we say... John the Baptist came from God. Jesus is going to say, how come you didn't obey his teaching? How come you didn't align yourself with him? And they say, then we got more troubles if we say he's not from God. All of the people know he's from God because they saw him and heard him. And, and we're, got, we're in trouble. So you know what they did? They copped out and they said, we don't know. We don't know where he came from. And Jesus goes, very well. Neither will I answer your question. I'm not going to tell you. Where I come from? Who sent me? Because Jesus knew he was sent by God. He knew John the Baptist was sent by God. If they didn't accept John the Baptist's ministry, they're not going to accept Jesus' ministry. They weren't interested in the answer. They were interested in getting rid of Jesus. If you read another uh, instance of this in, in uh, Mark, it says that they were trying to kill him because of instances like this. They, they weren't interested in where he came from. And so Jesus says, okay, I'm not going to tell you who sent me, but I am going to tell you a story. And here's the story, Matthew 21, 28. But what do you think about this, Jesus says? A man with two sons told the older boy, Son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, What? No, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. The father told the other son, You go. And he said, Yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Which of the two obeyed his father? The religion police replied, The first. Then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. How happy do you think that made the religion police? Tax collectors, I could go into all this, but some of you heard me say this before. In in the Jewish society, tax collectors were below dung collectors. And there was a job called dung collecting where you, you collect stuff. You go around the streets. You know, we have the street sweeper that goes down after the parade here. You know it's done when all the horses come and then the street sweeper smashes all the stuff. There were dung collectors. There was even a provision where if a woman was promised to a man to marry him and he goes into the dung collecting business, the law said she could leave him and say, I thought I could take it, but I could not. That's that's dung collecting. Tax collectors were lower than that. And Jesus says... Tax collectors, dudes that are lower than sewer inspectors are going to get into the kingdom of God before you. And then prostitutes, they killed prostitutes. If you were caught in the act of, of sexual immorality, you were stoned. They drug you, no trial. They drug you out and killed you. And Jesus says, dung collectors, tax collectors, prostitutes are going to get in the kingdom of heaven before you. 
Thank you, Jesus. That's right, because I wouldn't be there without, without him. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him. And here's, here's what Jesus says. While tax collectors and prostitutes did, and even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. So he's saying, you did not change. The, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they heard John's message. They said, John's right. We're pursuing the wrong things in life. We've got to change and pursue the things of God if we want to live forever. The religion police said, no, we're going to do things our way and we want people to do things our way. And Jesus said, whenever you religion police, he told them to their face, whenever you make someone a follower of your religion, you make them twice as much a son of hell. That didn't make them happy either. So the religion police, they said, we're going to follow God. They spent their lives studying the written word, which was the Old Testament at that time. They didn't have the New Testament. Spent their lives saying, we're going to defend God's word. We're going to make sure that people hear about God. But when it came to living it, they didn't do it. They were hypocrites. So they said yes, but their actions said no. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they went out chasing all of their stuff. They said no to God to begin with, but then they changed their hearts. They changed their actions and they became followers of the true God. And God says, they're the ones that get to come into heaven. So which ones get to to come into heaven? The ones that originally say yes and don't do it? Or the the ones who originally say no and do make a change. It's the ones who say no originally, but they make a change with their hearts and their lives. Because the Bible says, without faith, without works. The Bible says, I do not care what you believe. If you don't put it into practice, you don't believe it. You only believe as much of this Bible as you do. So don't tell me you believe every page if you're not going to do it. Don't tell me that you're under God's authority if you're going to disregard the authority of God's word. You're a hypocrite. And you need to learn that this is God's word and we need to follow it. Because when you come to a dilemma in your life, how many of you go to God's word and say, what does the Bible say? I'm going to do what the Bible says. You don't have to answer that. Because I know human nature. And I know many times there's something in God's word and it, tells me and I don't like it and I've got a choice to make am I going to follow it or not am I going to be like the religion police or am I going to humble myself like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and see the kingdom of God well how in the world how did the religion police get from studying God's word to defending God's word to being so far out that they're not even going to be in the kingdom of God well there's a clue in this next clip watch this do you think I flirt with Corey? Good morning to you, too. You look good. Thank you. Do you think I flirt with Corey? Yes. I don't mean to. I know. I think sometimes you just sort of spaz out with excess flirtatious energy and it just lands on anything male that moves. Anything male that moves, as opposed to anything male that doesn't? Well, like certain kinds of coral. Definitely gonna have to kill myself. Why? Because you think I'm all like, hey man, check me out. No, I don't. I think you're like, 
I'm charming and mysterious in a way that even I don't understand, and something about me is crying out for protection from a big man like you. It's very hard to compete with, especially as married women who've lost our mystery. Lost? You have? You are totally mysterious. No, I'm weird. Weird and mysterious are two very different things. I'm weird. No, you're quirky. Quirky and weird are two very different things. Peggy, I think there is a distinct possibility that I am profoundly and irreversibly screwed up. Despite that, I love you and I promise to no longer flirt with Corey. Maggie. I'm not worried about you and Corey, or, or, or me and Corey, or, or you being irreversibly screwed up. Maggie, you've been like this since we were kids. And all I'm thinking is, now that you're aware of it, and that it hurts people's feelings sometimes, maybe it's time to get on with life and commit to someone of your own, like Bob, if he's the one. Is there anything I can do to make it up to you? Well, there's always the thing that brings warmth to my heart, and that is duckbill platypus. Duckbill, that is only funny in like Camp Birchwood on a just do it trip do it. with the tent, and my leg is the pole, and it's raining, and you know that's the only time that's funny. Let's just see. to commit to number four if he's the one. Maggie has a flirt problem, and she didn't think there was anything wrong with flirting. But, but here's, here's a newsflash. This is on your listening guide. Flirting is never harmless. Now, you can apply these things that I'm talking about today to your physical marriage, but I want to go even deeper, and I want to talk about the church being the bride of Christ. And the problem the, the religious police had was that they were flirting. They knew God's word, but they were flirting with the things of the world. They were more concerned with what people thought about them than what God thought about them. And so they were flirting with the things of the world and they were disregarding God's word and they were disregarding God's people in his temple. Now, they weren't disregarding the church yet because it hadn't been established until after Jesus was crucified. We're talking about the church uh, of Christians, Christ followers. But they were talking about the temple. I want to apply it today to the body of Christ, being the church, being the bride of Christ. Flirting is never harmless. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, God's family is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So Jesus, uh, in, in, in the Bible, it tells us that that if you want truth, number one, Jesus is truth. Truth is a person. And the, the church is supposed to be the defender of that truth and the proclaimer of that truth. And so the Bible calls the church a family. And when Paul wrote this, um, these words in the New Testament, the idea of being a member of the church 
had the same connotation as being uh, a vital organ in someone's body. So just imagine for a minute, if, if one of your vital organs, let's say your lungs, could decide that they wanted to extricate themselves from your chest cavity and move out here and live by themselves. They're ready to move out. They're ready to be independent and live on their own. How long are your lungs going to last outside your body? They're going to die very quickly as well as you will. Your lungs were not created to live by themselves on their own, independent. And newsflash, neither were you. God created the church, the bride of Christ, the family of God. And he expects you to be a part of that family because you were not designed by God to live your life by yourselves, independently. We're supposed to be interdependent. Do you know the first sign of spiritual decline is usually inconsistent attendance at church? Whenever we become careless about the bride of Christ... Usually that's the first step away from God and then everything else in our life begins to suffer. It's just an indication of where your heart is. It's an indication of what your priorities are. And when you casually date the bride of Christ, then your eyes begin to wander for other things and you begin to want things, possessions, Buildings, houses, cars, toys, power, money, fame. You want those things and you begin to flirt and your heart drifts. And before you know it, you're way off, way far from God. And the Bible tells us that God is a jealous God. And he will not put up with anything else in the top spot besides himself. How many of you believe that it's wrong for a married person to flirt with someone else other than their spouse? Rest of you, raise your hands. Okay. If it is wrong, and, and you think about the spouse who, who the other person flirts, you think about how they feel about the situation, and you begin to get an indication of how God feels when we disregard and disrespect the body of Christ, His bride. Don't ever tell me that you love me and you hate my wife. First of all, I think you're an idiot because everybody loves Janie. Now, if you tell me the other way, I understand. But don't tell Janie that. Because when we committed to one another 19 years ago, we said we're, we're together. And so we're a team. You attack one of us, you attack both of us. You attack the bride of Christ, you're attacking the bridegroom himself. Everywhere you go, you have an opportunity to speak good or to speak bad about the bride of Christ. You carry a bucket of water and a bucket of gasoline and you have a choice. When you hear somebody say something bad about your church, the bride of Christ, you can chunk water on that fire or you can add gasoline to it and just participate in the gossip and bring harm to the church and actually bring harm to your own spiritual life as well. Whenever you do not participate in, in the body of Christ, you hurt yourself and you hurt your church as well. Now, Maggie shows uh, some engagement rings in this next clip, and I want you just kind of to think about the different guy because each guy had a different type of engagement ring, and we'll talk about that after this clip. This is Brian. Oh, Father Brian. And Gil's, of course. Gil, yeah. And George. 
He proposed at a butterfly farm in St. Thomas. The ring was inside a cocoon. Mm, a little too Silence of the Lambs for my taste, but... Well, he's an entomologist. Thought it was very unique. And finally, Bob. Mm -hmm. He proposed during the seventh inning stretch at an Oriole game. Wait, 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 don't tell me. Scoreboard lit up with Marry Me Maggie. It was one of the most wonderful moments of my life. Highly suspect. What do you mean? It was incredibly romantic. Look, maybe it's just me, but... You know, if you gotta dress it up like that, it just doesn't ring true. You know, I... I think the most that anybody can honestly say is... Look, I guarantee that there'll be tough times. I guarantee that at some point... One or both of us is going to want to get out of this thing. But I also guarantee that if I don't ask you to be mine, I'll regret it the rest of my life. Because I know, in my heart, you're the only one for me. I like it. I'd like it better on the scoreboard. <laughs> So is that what you said when you asked your wife to marry you? Well, don't look so surprised. You've got divorce written all over you. I'm a work in progress. So is that what you said to her? No, I think I said something very eloquent, like... So, um... Maybe you and I should, you know... What do you think, huh? Now that's romantic. And with a proposal like that, you didn't find eternal bliss? What went wrong? I don't know. You don't know? No. Maybe you should ask her sometime. Never thought of that. Now, the rings represented all of these choices or these, these questions from different men who wanted to marry Maggie. And she would get all the way to the altar, and then she would turn her back on them, and she would say no. And that leads me to the second point here. If, if, you want to, if you want to grow in your spiritual life and make an impact that lasts beyond the grave, then you can never say no to God. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Lord's Supper, and we took the Lord's Supper after our services, and we talked about what the Lord's Supper meant. When Jesus offered the cup to his disciples, he was saying, I am offering you my life. And they knew when they took that cup and they drank of that cup, they were saying, I accept your gift, Jesus, of your life, and I give you my gift in return, my life in return. So when you take the bread and you take the cup, you're saying to Jesus all over again, I do. I accept your gift and I give you my life in return. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. But here, uh, here's a caution that I have for you. The price of saying no to God is always greater than the price of saying yes. Saying no to God is how every fall from God, every failure begins. And it usually starts in very little things. And then there's this progression. Would you say that Maggie, it was easier for her to say no and run away the fourth time than it was the first time? It's because it had become a pattern in her life. 
And my guess is there's some folks here today that saying no to God has become a pattern in your life. And it started very, very small. When God asked you to make some type of commitment, you said, no, I don't want to. And then it becomes easier and easier and easier to say no to God. And before you know it, you're way out there. Not only do you not feel like you're part of God's family, you wouldn't know his voice if he were to speak. Because there's so much garbage going on. Because you've, you've put all of this competition in between you and God. All this distance between you and God. And the only way to get back is to confess. That little two-letter word radically affects our lives. And nothing of significance will ever happen in your life for God until you begin practicing that little three-letter word. Yes. See, first we say, yes, that I'm a sinner. We, we hear about Christ and we say, oh my goodness, he's the standard. It's not me and Osama bin Laden. It's not me and Saddam Hussein. That's not the comparison. The comparison is to me and Christ. And Christ is perfect. I am imperfect. So I say, yes, God, I'm a sinner. And then I say, yes, God, I need your forgiveness of sins. And then I say, yes, God, I need to be put in the body of Christ somewhere, wherever you choose. And then I say, yes, God, I want to grow wherever you plant me. I'm not going to run around and church hop and do all of this other stuff. I'm going to grow right where you plant me. And then I'm going to serve and I'm going to give my life for something that matters. I'm going to say yes to you, God. And then, before you know it, years go by and you look back and there's significant impact. I joined Facebook about a month ago. And uh, James was the first one to write, and he's like, welcome to 2010. And then Wes, the encourager, says, welcome to 2007. You're a little behind, Doug. And, you know, all of these, all of these comments. And I did it because I wanted to see the baptism photos that Ryan had posted. And uh, so that's the only reason I joined. And, and, you know, if you write me little messages, you may or may not get them back. I don't care. It just, it's not a big deal to me. But something I did not expect happened. Um, the first three friend requests I got, besides James and Wes, were uh, teenagers from my youth group in 1987. I was like, no way. Hey, how are you doing? This, and they start, they're telling me, be careful because Facebook can take up all your time and you know all of these things. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, but then the third one said, this is a great way to keep up with people that you've impacted their lives. And I just was blown away. Because I don't see myself, I don't see myself as having a big impact. I don't think of myself that way. I just try to do what God tells me to do. And I try to do it over and over again. And I leave the results up to Him. We can't say no to God and make any impact. Well, there's a third thing, and that's to stop running. You remember the story of Jonah? Some of you have heard it, some of you hadn't. Jonah was told by God to go to the wicked city of Nineveh, city of about 120,000 people, and to preach and to tell them that destruction was coming, but that he loved them. Well, Jonah liked the destruction part because these were disgusting people and he wanted to see judgment come upon them. He didn't like the love part, so he said no. And he took off running. He runs and gets on a boat and then he gets thrown into the sea. You know about that. And the, the whale, the, the large fish, we don't know if it's a whale, we're assuming. The large fish swallows him up and he's in the belly three days until he changes his mind. And he says, okay, God, yes. Jonah ran away from God. 
because he said no. And that's what happens. Every time we say no to God, we begin to run. It may be just a, a slow trot at first, but the more you say no, the faster your life picks up speed running away from God, running away from the commitments that God wants you to have. But whenever we run, God always finds us. In this last scene, Maggie comes to her senses and she wants forgiveness. Watch what happens. I wanted to talk to you about why I run, sometimes ride uh, away from things. Does it matter? I think so. When I was walking down the aisle, I was walking toward somebody who had no idea who I really was. And it was only half the other person's fault because I had done everything to convince him that I was exactly what he wanted. So it was good that I didn't go through with it because it would have been a lie. But you, you knew the real me. Yes, I did. I didn't. Still, I ended up chasing a truck. can't um, do anything about the truck, but uh, Benedict. Arnold. I love eggs, Benedict. I hate all the other kinds of eggs. I hate big weddings. Everybody staring. I'd like to get married on a weekday while everybody's at work. Mm -hmm. And if I ride off into the sunset... I want my own horse. Should I be writing this down? And there's something else. No, no, you can tell me. You can tell me. Don't. Okay. These are for you. Used. Well, they're mine. Turning in my running shoes to you. This is serious. And there's one more thing. I know, the mind reels that there could be more after after this, but um, if you could just have a seat. Mm. Yeah, let's just not have that there. Okay. Okay. No, no, don't hide your face. This happens once in a lifetime, and it's definitely a first for me, and you're not going to want to miss it, so pay close attention. <clears throat> I love you, Homer Eisenhower Graham. Will you marry me?
I gotta think about this a little bit. Okay, good. I was hoping that you would say you that. You were not. No, no, I was. I was. Not because true. if you'd said yes right away, I wouldn't be able to do this next part. And I've been practicing, so let me just. Okay. Ready? I'm listening. I guarantee that we'll have tough times. And I guarantee that at some point, one or both of us will want to get out. But I also guarantee that if I don't ask you to be mine, I'll regret it for the rest of my life. Because I know in my heart, you're the only one for me. The life that Maggie desperately wanted would never come until she turned in her running shoes. And you think about this in physical relationships. Marriages, great marriages, don't happen without unreal commitment to one another. You can't run away when problems uh, pop up. Great churches are filled with people who make a commitment to God and the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And, and you don't run when things get tough. You work it out. Jesus said people will know we're his followers by our unreal love for one another. The only way you ever demonstrate unreal love for one another is when you work through your differences and you reconcile. The ministry, Jesus said, Paul said Jesus' ministry was reconciling people to himself and then God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We're supposed to reconcile. Many of you are not ever going to be satisfied with your life until you quit running. You see, in, in Maggie's life, um, she ran away from everything, and when she turned in her running shoes, she was on the doorstep of the life that she's always wanted. When we flirt with the world, the Bible calls that spiritual adultery. When we say no to God, that means we put something else in first place above God. And the Bible calls that idolatry. When we run from God, we demonstrate our immaturity. So spiritual adultery, idolatry, immaturity. That's three strikes, right? Do you know what the antidote is to all three of those? Commitment. You become what you're committed to. Spiritual growth is all about a decision to follow Christ followed by a process. So my question to you is where are you in the process? Are you flirting with the world? Are you committing adultery by chasing things that are not of God? Are you saying no to God whenever He prompts you? Because why would God give you another assignment if you've said no to the last ten? If you're not going to obey there, God can't trust you with other things. God finds out how trustworthy you are in the little things. And then He gives you bigger things. And have you been running? 